Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 73, Living in the Plastic Age, in which we hear about developments in the world of polymers through the 1970s. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. The first innovation in the 1970s we briefly mention is the ability to make polycarbonate polymer clear and not amber colored in 1971. You may or may not recognize the word polycarbonate but perhaps you have heard of its trade names such as Cyrolon, Lexan, Macrolon, Merlon, Tufac, and Zelux. Interestingly, advances in the early 1970s came about because Israeli farmers were looking for alternatives to heavy but fragile glass panels on their greenhouses in the desert. Acrylic could not keep the temperature appropriate for farming inside. General Electric Company, which owned the Lexan name, did experiments on fabrication of tough polycarbonate sheeting with Polygal Plastics Industries Limited in the Israeli towns of Ramat HaShofet and Megiddo. In 1976, Israel got the first polycarbonate honeycomb panels. The panels trap heat up to 60% better than glass. Polycarbonate data disks for audio and later video purposes began to be manufactured in 1982. Around the same time as polycarbonate was improved, polybutylene terephthalate added as a copolymer into an elastomer, a polymer with stretchable properties like spandex, was invented at DuPont and called Hytrel. Hytrel has found its way into car parts, industrial parts like drive belts and gears, and all sorts of parts for appliances and power tools, and even sports materials. Polyethylene terephthalate, or PET, was of course known before the 1970s, but its best-known global usage didn't appear yet. Many beverage companies wanted a lighter weight container than glass bottles that would hold pressurized carbonated drinks, until an engineer at DuPont named Nathaniel Wyeth invented the PET bottle in 1970 after an estimated 10,000 tries. Reportedly, he would fill plastic bottles at home with ginger ale, a ginger-flavored non-alcoholic fizzy drink for you non-North Americans, and leave it overnight to see the results. Fabrication of such bottles needed the blow-stretch molding technology. Now, like Stieglitz the chemist and his brother, the photographer of over a half-century earlier, Nathaniel Wyeth had a famous artist brother, the painter Andrew Wyeth. Wyeth and his colleague, Ronald Rosevere Jr., applied for a patent for this new bottle, 
and it was granted in 1973. Fizzy drink manufacturers like Coca-Cola and Pepsi switched to the new PET bottles over the next decade, convincing themselves or perhaps others that recycling systems would appear. The year 1973 was also the year of the oil crisis, which those of us of a certain age still remember. The oil crisis didn't just affect motorized vehicles, which stood in lines waiting at gasoline or petrol pumps. The crisis also affected plastics manufacturers, for petroleum is an easy source of small molecules to polymerize together into a plastic material. Therefore, prices for plastics also shot upward in the 1970s, and goods manufacturers were forced to justify uses for various plastic materials in their products. All of a sudden, the polyacetal polymer became a sought-after material. The mechanical properties of polyacetals, the most famous of which is polyoxymethylene, were superb. These plastics are stable dimensionally through a large temperature range. That is, they don't expand much as the temperature rises, nor shrink much at cold temperatures. They have good wear against friction and are stiff and strong, plus offer better resistance to solvents. So polyacetals are often used as gears, bushings, and similar mechanical parts. A couple of years later, after the oil crisis subsided in 1975, a new elastomer was introduced by DuPont called Vamac. Chemically, it is a mixture of methyl acrylate and ethylene, but there is a bit of a special monomer to link the chains together, a cross-linking chemical. The properties vary a bit with how much ethylene and how much methyl acrylate there is. You have more methyl acrylate, you get a higher resistance to oil-based solvents, but the added ethylene gives it better thermal stability. These days, such ethylene acrylic rubber is popular in the car industry for hoses, seals, and turbocharger parts. You can even use them for gaskets on cylinder head covers. A milestone in consumer usage was reached in 1976 when plastic all grouped together became the most used material in the world. A couple of years later, in 1978, we get to what is now called, in brief, PEEK, which is short for polyether ether ketone. PEEK is a compound of the class of polymers called polyaryl ether ketones. These polymers have an aryl group, which is another name for a benzene ring, but attached to the polymer chain at two of the six carbon atoms, an ether group, which is just an oxygen atom with two single bonds, and a ketone, which is a carbon attached to a double-bonded oxygen. Peak itself has an oxygen attached to a benzene, attached to another oxygen, attached to a carbon with a double-bonded oxygen, attached to a benzene ring. This repeating train of organic groups continues two or three hundred times, forming the polymer chain. The whole thing is pretty rigid, but there is some flexibility and inertness. The regular repeating sequence, 
The regular repeating linear sequence allows the chains to crystallize, which gives extra mechanical advantages. Peak was patented by Imperial Chemical Industries, also called ICI, in 1978, and commercialized with the trade name Victrex several years later. It is a high performance plastic, so is used in industrial machinery for bearings, pistons, pumps, and certain valves. Peak doesn't evaporate off solvents like many other plastics. So it works in aerospace and even ultra high vacuum systems, like I used during my graduate student studies. I understand it is also used for cable insulation and even medically for spinal fusion devices and rods. Another advantage of peak is that, in many ways, it works better than metal, so it's ideal for lighter weight parts in aircraft. However, It does cost a lot to produce and it doesn't withstand ultraviolet light well because it is hydrophobic, oil loving, not water loving. In medical applications, human cells don't stick well to it. Also in the 1970s, the compound bisphenol A, but six fluorine atoms attached to the central propane section of the molecule instead of six hydrogens, then called bisphenol AF, was found to be a useful compound for crosslinking fluoroelastomers. Fluoroelastomers are also polymer rubber like materials, but they include many fluorine atoms substituting for the typical hydrogen atoms. The idea in fluoroelastomers is to gain the inertness of the fluoropolymer combined with the elasticity of rubber. A nice paper by R. E. Uschold in 1984 describes the early history of these fluoroelastomers with scientists trying to make an elastomeric Teflon. Researchers, though, noted that these fluoroelastomers contained a lot of hydrogen atoms remaining. And this leads the compounds to be readily attacked by chemicals. With the cross linking improved, the fluoroelastomeric properties also improved. Another improvement in existing polymers was first found in 1977 by Germans Walter Kaminski and Hans Jurg Sinn. If you recall from episode 51 in the early 1950s, A weird new series of compounds was discovered, the sandwich compounds, or chemicals similar to ferrocene. Ferrocene is two rings of five carbons each, like slices of bread, with an iron cation in the middle to make a sandwich compound. It turns out there are many different metal ions, not just iron ions, that can sit between the two organic ring bread slices. So, ferrocene is one compound in the set of all metallocene compounds. Kaminsky and Sinn discovered that certain metallocene compounds can catalyze the polymerization of ethylene into polyethylene and propylene into polypropylene. The best metallocenes seem to be those with the metal cation as the elements zirconium or hafnium. Ziegler and Natta revolutionized the polyethylene and polypropylene industries back in the 1950s with their catalysts. And Kaminsky and Sinn did the same a quarter of a century later. The difference here 
is that specific metallocenes seem to direct very precisely how the polymerization occurs. Do you want all the methyls on the same side of the polymer chain? On opposite sides? In groups roughly alternating on one side or the other? Different types of metallocene catalysts do just that. With such catalysts, engineers and chemists can adjust very carefully the properties of the desired polymers. Kaminsky and Sin published their results in 1980, and the rest is history. And now for something completely different in the field of polymers in the 1970s. We take you back to an Italian chemist of the early 20th century, Angelo Angeli. Among his research in organic chemistry was studying two organic compounds, pyrrole and indole. Pyrrole is a five atom ring, four of which are carbons, and the fifth is nitrogen. All of the atoms have a hydrogen atom stuck to them, so the full formula is C4H4NH. It's a clear liquid that has a nutty odor. Though pyrrole itself is not found in nature, Compounds with pyrrole rings are common, and we've seen them before heme, chlorophyll, and vitamin B12. Angeli was looking at oxidizers on pyrrole starting around 1915, such as a mixture of hydrogen peroxide and acetic acid. When he oxidized pyrrole this way, he got a black precipitate which he called nero di pyrrolo, pyrrole black. This precipitate was only dissolvable in basic solutions. After more research, Angeli decided that pyrrole black comes from polymerization of pyrrole. The best representation of the structure is just a linear chain of pyrrole molecules. Around the same time as Angeli, another Italian chemist, Riccardo Ciusa, was interested in pyrrole based biochemicals. One compound he examined was tetraiodopyrrole, in which the hydrogen atoms on the four carbon atoms were replaced by iodine atoms. If he heated the tetraiodopyrrole in a vacuum, he got a black material also, which he wanted to eventually use to make pure graphite, which is just carbon. But analysis of the black stuff was C4NHI all grouped with N units. With a structure of two pyrroles connected to each other, each pyrrole with an iodine atom, and the whole thing multiplied by a large number n. In short, it was a polymer of pyrroles as well. We then move forward four decades to the early 1960s to Australian chemist Donald Weiss. Weiss was interested in semiconducting organic polymers to use in an electrical way to remove salt from salt water. He first tried making pyrroles from xanthine, a three ring molecule, in which one carbon atom of the middle ring is changed into an oxygen atom. Weiss could get a P type semiconductor, but it was a very poor semiconductor. Weiss found Chusa's articles from decades before and thought maybe this pyrrole to graphite method would be better. Chusa never measured the electrical properties of the polypyrroles, so Weiss went ahead. But tried a slightly different synthetic method to get polypyrroles, doing the reaction under nitrogen gas, not a vacuum. 
The result was also a black powder that didn't dissolve in solvents, whose structure was, quote, a three-dimensional network of pyrrole rings cross-linked in a non-planar fashion by direct carbon-to-carbon bonds, unquote. But the resulting analysis was not like Chusa's, and there was much oxygen included, maybe because of water contamination. But interestingly, there was also molecular iodine, that is, I2 molecules, stuck to the surface of the powder, here is surface chemistry, and iodine in the network of carbons. Electrical studies showed that the polypyrroles did conduct electricity. The conductivity was much poorer than metals, and also worse than graphite, but conduct they did. More research showed that the surface iodine molecules were crucial to this electrical conduction. It seems that electrical charge was transferred between the polymer and the iodine molecules. Here is what Weiss said. Quote, Charge transfer complexes of strength sufficient to cause partial ionization induce extrinsic semiconductor behavior by changing the ratio of the number of electrons to the number of holes, unquote. Holes here, as we have learned in the episode about semiconductors, are atoms which lack a valence electron and so act as though there is merely a positive charge moving around. This was the first time that organic polymers were found to conduct electricity. Why would this be weird? Recall from earlier episodes that metals have a huge sea of electrons available to move around, but the electrons in organic compounds are typically trapped in specific orbitals. Apparently, in the case of polypyrroles, there was an available sea of electrons to conduct, at least in a manner akin to metals, as long as iodine was the doping material. We now move forward to the current place in our chemical history, the early 1970s. Japanese chemist Hideki Shirakawa was making polyacetylene, a polymer of acetylene. To get the reaction going, he added a halogen catalyst, but by accident added a thousand times too much. Inside his reaction vessel, he discovered a shiny, silvery film of product. A polymer that looks metallic? How could that be? Simultaneously, in Philadelphia, a New Zealand-American chemist, Alan McDiarmid, and a physicist, Alan Heeger, were studying an equally odd material, polymeric sulfur nitride, or polythiazyl, with formula SNX. This substance also looked metallic, but had no metal, only nitrogen and sulfur atoms. McDiarmid came to Tokyo to talk about his research and met Shirakawa at a coffee break. After hearing of the mysterious metallic polyacetylene, McDiarmid asked Shirakawa to come to the University of Pennsylvania and work on all these polymers. They oxidized the polyacetylene with iodine vapor and measured the conductivity. It conducted electricity. Doping the polyacetylene with iodine removes some electrons from the polymer, creating electronic holes, and conduction is possible. They published their research in 1977. For their research, all three, 
McDiarmid, Heger, and Shirakawa received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2000. Of course, why Weiss back in Australia never received the Nobel Prize for conductive polymers over a decade earlier is an unanswered question for me. Uses for such conductive polymers appeared only much later in our chemical history, but I will now say, but I will say that they now appear in solar cells, light-emitting diodes, and chemical sensors. As a side note, I guess I call it my brush with greatness note. When I was an undergraduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, I took an inorganic chemistry class whose teacher was none other than Dr. McDiarmid. I recall him as being tall, rail-thin, and with a strong New Zealand accent. As a second side note, when I was in graduate school at Rice University in Houston a couple of years later, starting my doctorate, I took a class in organometallic chemistry. In that class, I wrote a report on conductive organometallic polymers, and the professor, though he gave me a good grade, was a bit skeptical on the topic. In our next episode, we look at that new light source, the laser, and how it began to change chemistry in the 1970s, and how chemistry changed lasers. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.